Hello, everybody, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Today's guest is Brian O'Neill, and Brian is a pretty interesting guy. He's a musician, and he's also very much involved in the world of data and design and analytics. According to his own bio, Brian leads the acclaimed dual ensemble Mr. Ho's Orchestratica, which the Boston Globe called Engagingly Unique. As a professional musician, Brian has performed at Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, and the Montreal Jazz Festival, among others. As a product designer, he is the founder of the consultancy Designing for Analytics, which helps enterprise companies companies turn data into indispensable information products and services. And actually, for over 20 years, Brian has worked with companies including Dell, TripAdvisor, Fidelity, NetApp, J.P. Morgan Chase, and E-Trade, among others. Currently, Brian is focusing helping clients create more useful, profitable, and engaging decision support software and information products. He's also an international speaker and podcast guest, having appeared at multiple O'Reilly Strata conferences, Predictive Analytics World in Berlin, and on the IBM Analytics podcast, Making Data Simple. Brian also authored the Designing for Analytics Self-Assessment Guide for Non-Designers and maintains an active mailing list, and he hosts the new podcast, Experiencing Data. This conversation with Brian is fascinating because it's the intersection of music and technology, which is something I'm very, very interested in, and I think you're going to learn a lot listening to our conversation. Brian has some pretty great insights for independent musicians and also his experience um, trying to book himself and also attending some of the regional booking conferences is really an eye-opener in terms of what we might do differently and what we might be able to change in the future for the experience that someone such as himself is having. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brian O'Neill. Brian, I'm, I'm so glad we're finally connecting. You actually reached out to me a while ago after listening to one of our other podcast, our other episodes, and we quickly found out we had a lot in common. We are, we're both percussionists. We're both trying to book shows. We're both based in Massachusetts. We're both interested in how technology is changing the music industry. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm glad we were able to make this work. Yeah, me too. Glad to be here. Yes. So maybe before we dive in, why don't you just give a little bit of background on what your day job is and also the music ensembles that you are currently leading? Because I think your background is pretty unique as far as our previous guests go. And I think it'd be good to have that context. Sure. Um, Well, it's funny you say that. I actually don't think about, I don't think of myself as having a, a day job, so to speak. Um, my, I kind of have three, uh, three different uh, businesses, endeavors that I, I, I have. So uh, in Boston, New England area, one of my careers is, is being a freelance uh, percussionist and drummer. So this is Broadway shows, uh, orchestral work, uh, I play in several, uh, you know, local bands, Balkan, Klezmer music, Turkish stuff. Um, so that's kind of like my freelancing sideman kind of work. Uh, and then the the main performing arts uh, market uh, side of things that's relevant to your uh, audience probably is that I am the artistic director uh, and one of the percussionists and vibists in Mr. Ho's Orchestratica, uh, which is a dual ensemble that I founded about 10 years ago. Uh, there's a global jazz and exotic chamber music quintet and a 22-piece uh, large ensemble we call the Escavel Mega Band. Um, maybe we can talk about that later. And then uh, <clears throat> I also do, uh, I'm a consultant. I'm the founder and principal of a company called Designing for Analytics. 
uh, and I help uh, enterprise companies uh, turn data into indispensable information products. So for people that don't know what that means, um, as you probably heard in the news, there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, analytics, all this kind of stuff. And right now, uh, and, and for a you know, 10 to 20 years now, at least, uh, companies have been trying to turn data into either information products or as uh, to use as insights to make better uh, decision uh, decisions within the business. So my particular area is focusing on what's called user experience and design. And it's about putting people uh, at the center of these technology initiatives so that um, any products and app software applications, things that are created are actually useful, they get used, they incentivize uh, behavior change, uh, and they don't result in just uh, another poor technology <laughs> implementation that doesn't actually do anything for the business. And there's a lot of, it sounds glossy on the covers uh, when you read the news about what's happening, but kind of within the trenches, there's a lot of money being spent on, on large data projects and things that don't actually deliver any type of value. Uh, and so that's kind of the thing that I try to help out with is, is the design and the people part. <clears throat> Well, I, I definitely want to mention the podcast that you do, the the Experiencing Data podcast, because actually that's probably for me what was sort of the impetus for wanting to do an episode with you on Speaking of the Arts, because you, you shared with me the episode you did with Julian Benatar from, he works at Next Big Sound. Correct. And I was listening to that. As I was listening to that, it occurred to me that artists really are just generally in the dark about how to think about their data. And of course, specifically data that they can generate from everything from social media to their ticket sales and, and of course the actual, their actual music, whether it's streaming tracks or uh, music videos. So this is sort of a general question, but as both a musician and a, and a product designer for analytics, how do you think about that? Is there, is that, is that a, does that question even make sense? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of a broad so question, but. Well, there's, yeah. the way, there's the way I think about it in general, and there's the way I think about it for myself. So as much as I'm actually interested in that space for the, the type of work, like for my own ensemble, um, most of the analytics and the data that are out there in the volumes that are out there, we're a relatively niche uh, ensemble. It's not popular music. It would be akin to, you know, contemporary chamber music or something like that. Um, it's not a large volume thing. So trying to derive a lot of insight out of like, oh, which city should we route our next touring through? You know, if you've got a, a thousand listeners in the LA area, that's not probably going to like tell some, you know, a, a booking, uh, an arts presenter that, oh my God, we must book this. You know, if you've got 10,000 total followers on Spotify, it's just, it's, it's the most for you, but it may not be st really statistically relevant to making a business decision. So, um, you know, I know where our listeners are from some of the analytics that Spotify uh, provides, but in general, a lot of these services are rather uh, black boxes uh, in terms of uh, artist development, but I think they're getting better, like Next Big Sound, for example. That, that's, again, it's catered to me more towards kind of the song, the songwriter uh, folk and popular music thing where you're releasing singles more often and it's about getting listed in playlists and social media and it's a little I think I don't think that's really the model about how uh, you know artists like myself probably coming out of classical jazz 
uh, world music backgrounds may not think of it so much about songs. You know, when I when I record, I think about records still. I think about albums and artistically, that's what I'm interested in doing. So I, I'm not just because the rest of the analytics world and the data world likes to think of it in terms of singles and, and songs doesn't mean I'm going to change my, my own art. Uh, but if you are in that space, I think there's, there's more data than there ever has been before, but some of the juicy stuff uh, they don't share. Uh, and, you know, for example, I, I, I had, I knew one of the guys uh, from Echo Nest, which was the, uh, their, the best way to think of them is they're kind of the engine that, that powered the recommendations uh, behind Spotify's like what to listen to next, or you might like this artist if you like this artist. Uh, that was a data company based in Boston that was acquired by Spotify. And when I talked to them uh, a little, I was talking to the CEO of that company who was in charge of, I believe, what Spotify calls their creator services uh, arm, which is their artist and agent facing like analytics and, and stuff that they try to give back to the arts community. I, you know, I've told them for years, the number one thing you could do, put an email capture or like a button to join this artist mailing list right on the artist page. Like if you really want to give back to an artist, that's probably the best thing you can do since, you know, having your own mailing list, not, not Facebook likes and all of that is, is really critical to just about anything, any business these days, having your own audience that you own that someone else can't take away or MySpace, we all seen what happens, Right. Facebook pages, you, you, you don't, your posts don't get seen by more than five to 10% of the people who like your page at best, unless you're paying money. So of course they don't want to do that. And you can see the reasons for that. If you're the Taylor Swift's of the world or whatever, they're not going to give away that type of data. Um, but <laughs> anyhow, I'm kind of rambling here. Uh, I, I definitely have some opinions about artist data and, and how it can help, um, you know, for, for certain types of uh, ensembles, but I think it's a little less relevant for my own particular art and what we're doing at this uh, current juncture for where we are. <clears throat> I'm so glad you made the suggestion to them, <laughs> even though they didn't, they didn't take it, that at least somebody is giving them insight into what would actually be valuable. I, I mean, I don't want to yeah. go on Spotify too long, but I just was where was it? Maybe it's on the, the Spotify YouTube channel or something. I came across a video that they produced that tries to describe how revenue is shared amongst artists on Spotify. And I have to tell you, it was the most confusing description of revenue sharing for streaming music I've ever come across. <laughs> and this was a video, you know, a very good, sleek looking in-house video they produced. Um, describing how it's shared and it's not straightforward at all. They basically revenue is derived from an entire pool of streams with other artists and then broken out that way. It's not like it's a one-to-one, -one. you have 10,000 streams, therefore you are due X amount of revenue. It's, it's within the pool of other artists. It's very confusing. Oh yeah. Th th that whole, and again, that's the kind of stuff where personally I, the, the industry has changed and you're not, you're not going to change it. You can withhold your CDs and keep them off of these services if you want as an artist. And I, have, I totally respect that. I think for artists uh, like myself and probably the long tail of artists out there, your, your, your obscurity is your bigger problem than theft uh, at this point. And so until you, you really have some leverage there, you know, unfortunately, in one way, the your recordings are an advertisement. They're, they're marketing for your touring and the other 
um, types of uh, experiences that you might be able to monetize, whether it's you know, behind the scenes type, you know, video access to the creation of the recording, all those things that we've, we've heard uh, artists, uh, you know, doing these days. Um, that's a, that's a whole nother arm. There was something actually I wanted to say though, about you were talking about, uh, oh yes, the, the revenue model there is, someone came up with this great post a few years ago about one way that, that, that Spotify could improve this model of how they share revenues. So instead of, and, and the issue with this is they put all the money into the pool and then they're looking at songs, song play counts as the metric by which the pool is uh, distributed out to artists. And the, the challenge with that or the argument against that is let's say that Mike Epstein loves Mr. Ho's Orchestratica, which you totally do, I'm sure. And the only artist... I listen to it all the time. Of course. <laughs> and the only artist you listen to on Spotify is my, my ensembles. So you're paying $19.99 a month or whatever the fee is. How much of that revenue from Mike should go to Brian's band if Taylor Swift had 2 billion song plays the same month that I had Mike's 982 song plays and the other 17 accidental plays that happened that people didn't mean to click on my band. <laughs> How much of that revenue should have gone to Brian? So the argument there is, what if the model for, for distributing payments was based on the number of, they factored in the number of artists that the listener listened to. So it's weighted by their artist interest because they're only listening to a handful of artists doesn't it seem like more of that $20 a month that Mike's paying should go to those artists that he's listening to, not to the people you're not listening to? That's, and to me, that makes a lot of sense. And I've not heard any counter arguments to why, why that would not be fair, except that my guess is the major labels that are investors in Spotify don't want to do that because you're spreading the income out to the long tail. And the biggest artists that have representation with the labels are going to see their revenue go down because it's no longer song driven. So anyhow, that's a whole nother, <laughs> another, you could do a whole episode on that. And I'm, I'm not a royalties expert because it's it royalties are such a drop in the bucket in terms of revenue for what we do. I don't really care about right. it so much, but it's, it, I'm interested yeah. in generally. It's, fa it's fascinating though, especially because, I'm not going to be able to cite my source here. Again, just something I was reading, but um, uh, it was an article that said essentially 80%, at minimum 80% of an artist's revenue now is, of course, from live performing live performances. Right. Which is not surprising to hear at all. So anyway, thank you for that. That's You've got me thinking about a lot of things now. But I, I have one other specific question for you that I'm wondering you might be able to shed some light on while we're talking about data and analytics. And so... Um, in particular, I'm, I'm very curious about predictive analytics as it relates to what we're talking about. And I, I personally, I, I don't have much knowledge or experience with predictive analy analytics at all. So for people listening who are not familiar with, with what that is, can you explain in general what predictive analytics are and maybe how these types of statistics are used? Uh, sure. <clears throat> um so predictive analytics, you're, you're probably seeing it all, you're actually using it all the time. So uh, for example, when you're typing on your iPhone or, or your Android device and it starts recommending words and you can just tap the word and you can tap faster, that's predictive analytics right now. And, and as you write, you're actually 
updating, uh, and I am not a software engineer or a data scientist, so I'm trying to break this down the best I understand it. You're actually helping train the model that's in there. So for example, when I write the words, uh, I help my, like my company, you know, my, my tagline for my business, or let's say global jazz and exotic chamber music, that's, that's how I describe my quintet. If I write global jazz and almost certainly my iPhone is going to type in exotic as the next one of the next suggestions because I've taught it over time that when I write out global jazz and the next word is going to be exotic. And so that's, there's a model in what's called a, a data model in there uh, that's, that's always being updated and it's learning over time and that's how it gets comfortable with your, uh, which, how you write so some of these models are kind of invisible. You don't see them. The, the recommendation stuff we talked about on Spotify where it says you might like these movies on Netflix or these artists might be interesting to you. Those are based on predictions. So, And this is why Echo Nest, that company was bought by Spotify, is to do this really well. They, they went out and they modeled songs. So what does that mean? It means creating, uh, imagine just like a spreadsheet with columns and like one column is beats per minute. The next one is uh, key or tone, major, minor, other. Um, they, they started analyzing all of these songs and, and, and with data. And then what you can do is start to, when you can model all the different songs and artists that are out there, it's much easier to, to then predict who someone else might like. If you like songs at this BPM that have vocals that are sad in nature, that are liked by these other things, then you might also like X, Y, and Z instead. So this is what data scientists do. They create data models uh, and, and machine learning and, and uh, predictive analytics. Those are basically uh, synonyms. Um, AI is almost used as a synonym. It's, it's kind of a catch-all word. And a lot of people in the industry actually don't, don't like it. In fact, there's kind of a joke in the, in the tech world, which is if you see the words AI, AI uh, I'm sorry, if you see it, uh, if you see it written in PowerPoint, it's probably AI. And if you see it written in code, it's probably machine learning. And the joke there is that the marketers right now, everyone is using this language because it's in the hype cycle. But really, it's machine learning and it's really math at the end of the day. And eventually, the whole AI hype cycle will die down a little bit and it will just become part of normal stuff. So that's basically what machine learning is. If we put it to like a music context, uh, a great example of what predictive analytics could do would be um, if you're, let's say you have a 2000 seat venue uh, and you had great, uh, you have 10 years of historical uh, ticketing data and you know a lot about your subscribers and like, where do they live? And you know, what, what shows did they go to? You might, your data set is probably a little bit small to do real predictive analytics, but theoretically, if you had enough volume there, you could, uh, train a model that would create a prediction about if we booked this artist who has these characters, it's classical music, it's chamber classical chamber music, uh, keyword is uh, contemporary and something else, you could uh, teach, uh, create a model that would look at uh, in the past of the people that went to these concerts, who might be the most likely to purchase tickets for this show. And then how could you use that? Well, you could target your marketing in a different way, or you might do some, like maybe you send out hard, you know, hard content, like, you know, mark a brochure, whereas you don't, you only do email for the other 80% of your audience who did not come up in the prediction. But that would be a form of what 
uh, predictive uh, analytics are. And so this is what a lot of companies, when you hear data is the new oil and all this kind of hype, even for companies like point of sale, uh, ticketing systems, all of this, they're all looking for ways to do things like predictive analytics uh, and, and to create these kinds of insights so that customers can actually do something with the data because the data by itself is not interesting. It's the insights from the data that are interesting and you need to be able to present that in a way that makes sense uh, to you. Like in your case, uh, you know, to, to an, you know, to an agent, for example, it's like, wouldn't it be nice if you could predict which, you know, uh, which performing arts venues might be most likely to like this new artist that you onboarded because you have, we have some kind of data set about where other artists like this have toured in the past and where were they successful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, 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 the rut with all of this is that you need what's called, you need good training data, which mean, and you need it in pretty large volumes to do this stuff. Uh, and this is one of the uh, underpinnings of, of, of all of this. And, and on the scale we're talking about with like a venue with 2,000 seats, even with 10 years of data, maybe there's enough. I don't, again, I'm not a data scientist, but my guess is that, that the amount of data available to start doing accurate predictions could be difficult at that scale. Uh, so this is, this is actually uh, an area of research for some of the real, like the, the PhDs and math and all of this. One of the things that they work on is how do we create better predictive models that data scientists can use that don't require as much training data because everybody, all businesses are clamoring to do this right now, but the volume of data and the cleanliness of the data in order to do this is not always available. Uh, and so that's sometimes a, a, a blocker from, from making this stuff work. So is that helpful? <laughs> this, you're, you touched on so many things. I was hoping that either you would or I was planning on trying to steer you towards specifically how, does predict, how can predictive analytics be used, in my case, in live touring? And you just touched on it beautifully. So now I, I want to think of a couple of quick follow-up questions. Just to go back a little bit further, when you were talking about the training, training models, training what was the training data? Yeah, training, training data. Am I correct then that if I'm doing a search, whether it's on Spotify or YouTube or whatever, um, when I do these searches, and you gave the example of uh, using your phone and it auto filling, those those other platforms they will auto fill. So I'm essentially training them on my preferences, right? Not necessarily. Um, you might just be no. doing a, a kind of a, a quote dumb search where it's just mat it's just matching the letters that you're typing and looking something up. Could you enhance that? Yes, you could. You could teach. You probably wouldn't even really need to use predictive analytics for this, but you could train the system to know that every time you type in, you know, I don't know, name some S N A R you almost always click on snarky puppy. And so they, they push that artist name up in the search result because it's more likely that you're going to click on that one than some other one. They may use some machine learning for that. There's other ways to do it from an implementation standpoint. And again, I'm not a software engineer. I don't write code. I don't get involved with that. Um, so they, they probably aren't doing it as much there. But one of the other things to, to, to realize here that's different about, and, and I don't want to get too lost on, on machine learning here. Uh, it, it, the two things, if people are wondering about this, is that there's no sense of what's called like general intelligence with, with AI or machine learning. So it's like, is this, is this picture 
a cat or not. You've, maybe you've seen this like thing on Google where they've, they've created this whole thing, which, which is yeah, yeah. predicting the picture of a cat. The software actually doesn't know what a cat is. You couldn't have a conversation with the software about what a cat is. The only way it even knows it's a cat is that someone gave it a bunch of photos and said, this is a cat. And it's literally just three letters C-A-T. Beyond that, the system has no idea what a cat is or a dog. Right. It doesn't know anything. Right. It just knows it's a cat or it's not. That type of, like, our brain works very differently. And so there's no, we're so far from, like, the Terminator and all this kind of stuff. It's so far away from anything like that. You have to train these models uh, to know that. And it takes a lot of photos of, of actual cats in order for it to start being able to predict whether it's a cat or not. Uh, but one of, the, one of the things to know about this that's a little bit different is that with machine learning, you're taking sets of data, uh, large sets of data with information, and you're giving it examples of, again, the training, right? So the cat photos would be, here's you know, 10,000 photos of cats. Now I'm going to give you 100,000 photos of anything, and I want to see if it can accurately predict which ones are cats. The point here is, you don't tell it features like a cat has two ears and, you know, you don't go in and describe that and like with if then. So if a whisker is here, then it might be a cat or it might be a mouse. And then if it has a skinny tail, then it's a mouse that you're not coding in all of that logic into the model. Instead, you're just looking for correlations in the data uh, and, and not the human. This is what the machines are doing. They're processing all this information. And so what can happen is this is where you start finding out weird stuff. Like uh, in a business context, it could be that you find out, wow, we predict, you know, for some reason, the combination of women buyers who are 18 who like bowling happen to purchase a lot of our whatever, like <laughs> I don't know, tennis rackets. And you're like, what? How can that possibly be true? The machine doesn't know why it's true. It just knows from the training data you gave it, there's a high correlation between those characteristics and people who have bought in the past. So it may start predicting that you should go after that person. Now, this is where ethics and other things start to get involved because uh, there's, there's been some very famous examples of this failing terribly uh, Amazon was using it, uh, I believe this is Amazon, I could be wrong here, uh, for job hiring, right? So they were bringing in, uh, they were using machine learning to look at, to scan and read the resumes and then predict which people uh, would make, I think it was either just to do a hiring interview or which people would make good employees. And it, the machine, the, the predictions, I believe, started to turn out to be either racist or misogynist. It would say, like, don't, whatever you do, don't select women and don't select women who like bowling and don't select women who like bowling that went to this particular school. And why did it do that? Because that was the training data that was fed into the system. It was probably biased because they've hired, typically they've hired so many men. Well, guess what? It's probably not going to come up with a recommendation to, to hire 50% women and 50% men if the training data was all based on men who were hired. So I hope that makes sense. But the point here is there's no generalized intelligence. The machine doesn't think about ethics. It doesn't know anything about that. It only knows what was fed into it. So garbage in, garbage out, right? As they say, it's only as good as that training data that's, that's in there. And it's, it's just looking for correlations and then giving them a score and saying, hey, we think these are going to be, we predict X based on what you, you told us. 
Um, so ethics, there's a whole practice of ethics right now with AI and these systems to make sure that they're making good decisions to train the people working on these solutions to properly uh, think about these considerations. And, and I think most companies, they're not trying to do this. Like this is still, uh, people are still learning how to do this. And, and it's not like, oh, the technology people are, you know, all bad and all this. And yes, there are examples of, of data privacy issues and all that. And we don't want to get in on all of that. But in my field, in my general practice, I rarely meet any, anyone that I would feel is unethical or not trying to just do really good stuff with their work. Um, they're not, they're not trying to create bad systems. If anything, it's a lack of awareness about uh, th these things. And it's just an ongoing process of, of educating and, and getting better. So, <clears throat> Have you read the book 20, uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century? You know no. that book? Uh -uh. So the author is Yuval Harari, and he wrote uh, another book called Sapiens, which is really, I guess, I've never read Sapiens, but I, I found out about the author through the book that I read, 20, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. But I'm bringing this up because one of the things he talks about is what he's, he's basically asking the question, what's going to happen when sensors like on, that we wear are connected with how we respond emotionally to music? And what's interesting about that is he talks about it's, it's, it's not unlikely that once these computer programs become more sophisticated and know how we emotionally respond because of these sensors that we're wearing to music, they could potentially program or create music that's more, that's more um, emotionally direct to how we respond individually than an actual human composer. Yeah, I mean, again, they're kind of crazy. Yeah, it's, it's neat. And <laughs> I just thought I'd put that out there while we're talking about the intersection of all this data and technology, and I couldn't help but mention that. Sure, and and I'm sure there's like really practical reasons for you know people working in commercial music, or you know, some songwriters may want to leverage this type of intelligence, and I'm sure that there. I, I don't know. I'm sure someone has already done some modeling of like let's look at the top 100 billboard hits over the last 50 years, analyze the audio, look for traits and predict how to write a good song. 10, I'll bet you hundred bucks. Someone has already done that. I don't know how much artists would care about that. And, and to be honest, even some of the very academic mathematicians, I mean, I was speaking at a conference in Berlin called predictive analytics world. And I went out to dinner with a couple like, theoretical mathematician i couldn't even i couldn't even understand the title slide of their talk just to give you like <laughs> stuff going on there but they had very little interest in in any of this like they're like i i don't even want to work on that like i have no interest like the soul at that point the soul of it's gone and i don't think we could ever really try to perfectly model out how the creative process works and what a good song is it just would sap all of the luxury all the feeling and the emotion out of it. So I, I, I don't find it particularly interesting. I almost never read those things. It's just, to me, it's, I, I, it sounds like a recipe at that point. It feels like work. Like, let's see how close to the perfect song I could write. Like what, like what happened to stuff coming out of nowhere, or at least in our minds, it comes out of nowhere. I'm a composer, but I have no interest in writing what I think everyone's going to want. I just want to create something that's from me. That's a statement. And I hope it'll resonate somehow, even if it's, I hate it or if I love it, great. I, I'd rather do something than nothing, but I really don't care if it's, <laughs> as an artist, it just doesn't interest me very much. But I'm sure it's, 
I'm sure that stuff's out there, you know? It's probably being used now yeah. in, in studio. I wouldn't be surprised if they know what track the next, you know, next year, next fall, we need songs at 160 BPM and they should have, you know, really fast hi-hat backgrounds and get rid of the auto-tune because the songs with auto-tune have been trending downward recently and we predict, you know, that it's going to go down again. So no auto-tune. You know, I would not be surprised if that's how like some pop songs are being made these days. I don't know. I kind of hope it's not true, but wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised either. Or like you said, if it's been going on for a while. Well, why don't we kind of switch our focus then and talk a little bit about, I'm curious what your experience has been like as an independent artist, uh, specifically booking shows and then maybe getting into your experience also with conferences, because this is something you and I have been talking about a little bit. And I think it would be worth talking about now, especially because a lot of our listeners are either conference attendees or presenters at conferences or organizers of these conferences. What, when, I mean, what is, before we get into the conference world, what's your experience been like as an independent artist trying to book shows in general? <laughs> uh, it, I would say it's, it's difficult and it's, a, it's, it's playing the long game. Um, so I, you know, I don't, again, as we talked about earlier, I have enough like other projects in my life where I'm just a side man. I play the music that we're told to play and all that kind of stuff. For my own group, I, I don't really want to change the art. Uh, I don't want to sacrifice what I want to do artistically. So for me, booking in the performing arts market is finding those people where they like this particular art and they think it's going to resonate with those audiences. And we know, like my, my quintet, which is the primary, uh, the primary group that, um, that I'm putting out into the, into the market, definitely falls into the different category. Uh, and so we know that it's, it's going to take, I, I know from just experience, it takes time to build up relationships with people. And, uh, a no this year doesn't necessarily mean a no in a couple of years. And some of my discussions go on for two, three, four, five years before something happens. Uh, so it's just a process of, uh, you know, staying in touch with people, trying to be persistent without being a pest. Um, you know, all the typical sales stuff that I'm sure most agents, uh, are, are aware of. Um, I would say the, the hardest thing with it is, uh, balancing that being persistent without being a pest when there's a lack of feedback coming back. And, and I'm sure you've had a million people talk about, you know, no is the second best answer after yes, but si you know, silence is the worst because there's no information to go off of there. You might have a lead that's feel, feels like it's strong and then it's just completely cold with no explanation. You try to wake it up and you know, you can't. And so, you know, all that stuff is pretty frustrating, but, um, yeah, for us, it's, it's generally pretty hard. My, my method is, uh, I do a lot of just cold, uh, calling and cold outreach. Um, I, I don't know a lot of, uh, you know, self repped artists in this market. I, I think most of them don't know anything about this performing arts market. Like even in Boston, we have a lot of, we have a big creative music scene here. Uh, and a lot of the people coming out of school and the great music that's around, in my opinion, will never get into these venues because there's this wall between the whole performing arts world and uh, the, the musicians coming out of schools. And I've heard about some programs to change that, but I had no idea how any of this worked. For me, it's like, where can I play? Oh, I'll go to a club. I'll try to get booked. Oh, you guys don't book jazz and chair. Oh crap so it's like then it's like really hard to get in there because there's only a few venues that book any type of creative music so at that point you're then either change if you're 
desperate and you're, you know, to just get anything out there, you might start changing your art just to have a venue to play in. And the venues keep closing down as well. We just lost another one here in Boston. Uh, yes, I just saw news yesterday about a small uh, creative music spot that had closed. So well, no, which one? Third, uh, Third Life Studios, do you know over in Union Square? Was a very, it was like, no, a, actually- a, like a lily pad type space. Um, but you know, the rents went up and I think she had to, the woman that was kind of ran her, she ran a private lesson studio, but also it was, it was a performance space. Um, I haven't uh, played there much cause I'm more focused on touring these days, but you know, it's, it's a challenge for everyone in that sense. But uh, for me, I'm willing to play the long game with this and I believe we have something you need to contribute uh, to, to the arts market. And, um, and so that's, it's, it's definitely the long game. So it's a lot of emailing uh, and calling presenters and trying to, you know, figure out whether or not what we do will connect with their audiences. Um, data actually is one of the most challenging things here. It's getting, getting access to even just who are all the people that actually buy concerts, that buy stuff. That's, that's a challenge. Um, websites can range from great to terrible, which means you have very little information on whether you're even talking to the right person, have they moved on? Do they have any interest in booking your stuff? Their previous seasons are not listed. There's nothing about how to approach them except the occasional, you know, don't contact us at all bullshit that you see on some of these, you know, festival websites. It's like, well, they'll never know about us if we don't contact them. So, and maybe they only do curate, but I'm still going to, you know, occasionally if I'll still reach out to one of those. But the point is without any information, it's hard to, expect i think if you're on the receiving end you're going to get a lot of junk you're going to a lot of pitches for stuff it's like what an eagles tribute band it's like we're the jazz festival we're the only jazz festival within 500 miles that's we don't book anything like that well if you don't communicate that to a salesperson then they're going to call you and it's just no you're not going to respond to them they're probably going to persist for a while you're going to have spam in your inbox and so to me that kind of lack of good information is is a challenge sometimes um, so you, I mean, obviously you can go and look at where other artists similar to you have played and try to curate your, your routing, your, your, your sales approach, uh, from that perspective. But you know, it's, it's an ongoing challenge to, uh, to figure out, <laughs> you know, who the right people are to approach for your thing. But I'm starting to learn more about who that is, you know, but then again, you get these weird, sometimes I get like, wow, I never would have thought this, you know, this community would be interested in this and that's where we ended up playing. So great, <laughs> you know? You had a, yeah, you had a couple of good ideas when we were talking earlier about about this problem of how can how can an independent artist better be how can you how can you make a better use of your time when you're dealing with a lot of websites that are not very instructional as far as would this even be a good fit? Um, and you touched on that a little bit just now, but you know you were you, you some of the things you mentioned would be like well what about just creating a simple form um, where you know maybe it wasn't a form but Am I remembering correctly? You had like a couple of, what if they could just have a couple of bullet point uh, bullet points on there for booking, but that was a little bit more than just saying no, you know, no, um, don't contact us. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm I, talking about? I'm kind yeah, of putting I, you on the spot. I think just you know, listing out genres, um, listing out what what they you know what you don't program. Uh, when is the best? When is your booking cycle like? I mean, I have a CRM now with you know probably four thousand contacts in it, and one of the fields I started capturing about four years ago was when does their booking window open? And not everyone starts in August. Some places don't start until February. So knowing that is is important, but that's never 
that's almost never published there. Also knowing when do right. they stop, like what, what, at what month are they typically done? Because that helps you know whether to give up if you're not hearing anything so that you're not sending out, you know, unsolicited mail and all of that. Um, and a lot of places say, you know, don't follow up, but it's like, I, I, I respect that. And my thing is usually, okay, when is the, if we don't talk again, I'm happy to not follow up if you're not interested, but I'm probably going to follow up in a year unless you tell me an earlier time is good. So just say no now, or you might hear from me uh, again, because I don't want to waste my time. I'm not going to get hurt by that uh, information, but kind of knowing when the booking cycle closes is helpful because a lot of people just aren't comfortable saying no or do it another time or whatever, you know, and, and part of us as, you know, agents and artists is you have to be respectful when, when you get a no, it's just, you say, thank you. And if it's not a right fit. It's, it's, you don't push like, I don't know. I'm, I don't do the whole car salesman tactic. Although I definitely felt like I was in that world a little bit at some of these conferences, just kind of walking around. And there's definitely a set of agents that have a very aggressive uh, outbound kind of sales tactic that I would not want representing myself personally, <laughs> even if they, I just don't like to work, uh, work that way. I don't think selling somebody is not what it's about. It's just about figuring out is this product, is this artist and this music right for your audience? Is it going to help you achieve whatever your programming goals are or not? I don't want to spend time with you if it's not. I'm happy to get off the phone. In fact, I'll recommend someone if I can think of, oh, you only want to book Celtic this year? Oh, do you know this band? They kick ass. Like, I know the drummer. Like, I'll send you their thing. Like, if that's what you're looking for, just be helpful. And But sometimes they don't know, as you know. You've, I'm sure you've had this. They don't really know. Oh, I'll know it when I see it. Well, good luck with that. And you're going to get a lot of volume and you know, <laughs> you know, have you ever know. thought about being a booking agent? <laughs> What's a, I am a booking I agent for my own group. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, what I, mean. I know for your own group, but I mean, you know what I mean? No, no, no interest in that. I, I personally don't, I don't mind <laughs> doing it, but it takes so much time and it, it means like you're spending a lot less time create, writing music and working on the art right. part and all of that. But my, my kind of long, I look at the orchestratica as my startup. It's like a, it's a long-term thing. I'm in it for, for good. And it's a, it's, I don't mind if it's, as long as it's growing a little bit, I'm fine with that. It's, it's, I'm in it for the journey and, and part of it's the process uh, and just the learning about it. And, and that's, what's interesting me, but I don't want to do it for other people. Although I have been kind of coaching some, my wife has a classical trio and, and she doesn't run it. There's a, the cellist runs it. So I've kind of just been trying to help them out a little bit with, knowing that this world exists, how to pit, you know, how to pitch somebody and what to say when they ask like what your fee is and how do you do, you know, a pricing discussion and all of that and what's block booking. Oh, it's a farce. <laughs> By the way, I had that conversation <laughs> with another agent yesterday. I posted on on the Pama group like, "Hey, we got actually my group got selected to showcase at Arts Market." And so I was like, "Who has some kind of modern up-to-date information on effective showcasing?" Primarily more on like the marketing aspect and like how to, you know, anything that I don't know that I don't know about it. It's not so much like I don't, I know how to promote like a show. So I know how to promote a showcase and let people know we're doing it, but just anything like that. And, and a nice, uh, Tiffany Goodman actually reached out to me and just said, I'd be happy to get on the phone with you. And she gave me some great information uh, about that. And somehow block booking came up and she just totally laughed, you know, and it's the same thing we, how we connected, right. When I heard your episode with, uh, uh, Tim, I think it was at, Tim. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, about this as well. Right. That's obviously another right. place where data and software 
and analytics could help out uh, with with the routing aspect and some of that difficulty. But with all this stuff, it's like if you don't get the people part right, it doesn't matter. You can build an app, but if no one logs in to uses it, and if it requires them to do a bunch of work and they don't see the value in doing that work, it's not going to solve. It's not going to increase block booking. So it really the incentives have to be in place, and people have to be bought into it. So I. Yeah, <laughs> that's my take on which, it. Which conferences? Yeah, which conferences have you attended, and what what has your experience been like at those? Um, I went to I went all in last year on the regionals. So I I did uh, well. I went to Arts Northwest two years ago, and then I didn't feel like that was quite the the right fit for us, just genre wise and and some of that. Um, but everyone was super nice there. And then I did WA PAE Arts Midwest and Maypam uh, last year. Just to give it a fair shot, I've heard a lot of mixed things from from other artists that have gone to these before, uh, even about the value of showcasing and all of that. And my general thing is taking as much data as I can get. At some point, this is this is part of how this ecosystem likes to do things, and so I wanted to to form my own opinion by actually trying it one year. So we invested a you know a significant amount of money, or at least I did, in, in terms of going to all these conferences, getting a booth, and kind of feeling out uh, how that goes. I felt it was very, it was definitely uh, an interesting experience. Um, one thing that was really nice and kind of fun was how helpful the other agents are like with each other and just even me and just I met Mike Green was super great. I met a lot of super nice people that were just helpful and, and that surprised me. I kind of felt like it was going to be this more of a meat market kind of thing and I, and I didn't expect that. And you could definitely kind of tell who who's in which camp. And it definitely, it kind of seemed to tie a little bit more between the art versus entertainment spaces. So the more entertainment oriented agents, uh, I was not talking to them about strategies and booking and all that there. You could just see this there in their eyes. They're there to sell. It's like fresh meat, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there's a set of people that are very willing to share information and just kind of be helpful and encouraging and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so, so the people part was great. I don't think it's the right thing for uh, artists to go to, uh, if, at least if you're not showcasing. I've, I've been told if you're showcasing, it's an entirely different thing. I'll, I'll know if I think that in five months or so from now after I go to my first uh, showcase here with Arts Market, if I agree with that. But I, I guess the main thing I felt was there, there's some discovery happening on the floor in the exhibit hall, which is the time that all the agents want. But that model just feels really weird to me um I, it's if i priced out i kind of was going to do this i never got time but i looked at pae like the cost of going to that and i tracked all of my conversations like either a scheduled call that i had or if it was an unscheduled stop by in my booth and i kind of categorized it because that was a pity stop by like i always try to talk to the new artists and it's like, that's great, but you're a dance company. I know you're never going to book us. And I don't mind just <laughs> making a relationship and that's fine. Like it starts with a relationship anyways. But but after you filter out some of those kind of no way and that's ever going to happen kind of people, how many conversations did I have divided by the entire investment cost of going to this camp, going to this uh, conference? And I want to say it was like, for me, it was probably in the like three digit, like over $120 per contact. So it meant every fresh person, not fresh person, but <laughs> every uh, new person that I met, a new presenter that I met there cost over $100 to have that conversation, whether it was two minutes or 
10 seconds or whatever it may be. Now you could say, well, if you're booking a $5,000, $10,000 show, then it's a hundred bucks. It's like, yes, but if you're spent 10 grand, $15,000 for the year going to that conference, and then some people were telling me, oh, you have to come three, four years before anything happens. It's like, so you're telling me I need to make a $50,000 investment on top of all the records and everything else I've done. Like, are you kidding me? Like what that says is it's, it's the privileged people that have money that can even go to these things. If you're, if you're a self-represented artist, you're, you're definitely cutting out good art in the market with that model. And, and I know that the, I know that WA and some of these places, I'm sure they're not making money. Like they're not making gobs of profit when they factor in the hotel costs and all of this. I, I'm sure it's just a numbers game to make it work for everybody. But honestly, if I'm going to spend a hundred dollars on a quote lead acquisition, I can go buy Facebook ads or there's just so many other ways I could probably spend a hundred dollars uh, on my marketing than going and waiting for someone to drop by in a booth like that. That just didn't feel great. So I had, you know, it's, you go to the socials and, and you meet people there and some of that. I, I felt the uh, workshop, the training, like the training things that they had, which I guess were kind of supposed to be more for the presenters to learn. I feel like the content of those was, fairly weak, uh, just as a general statement. Like I, I went just cause I want to hear what their pains are. Like, what's it like being in their seat such that when I approach them, maybe there's a way I can help in terms of like how we work. Like, Oh, I never knew it was a pain that the artists don't advance half the time. And you're wondering if they're coming, like we always advance and I'm going to remember to, you know, do whatever. And I'm just making something up. But I just felt like a lot of those workshops were pretty thin on content and information they're they're just uh kind of light <laughs> i hate to say it <clears throat> for me the one thing i would love to change and i'm curious if this if this would make sense for you as an independent artist who went to the conferences is i would love to reverse the the model such that i'm not responsible for manning and staffing a booth instead the presenters are so i'm able to walk around and meet new presenters just by sheer nature, being able to walk up to their booth, it, it gets old year after year, you know, to, to pay that cost to man and staff the booth and to set up all meetings in advance. So presenters will come to you. Right. I, I don't think it'll ever happen because I, I, I proposed this before. I'm actually on the WA planning committee conference committee for this year. And it's not, unfortunately, it's just not going to happen, <laughs> but do you think that would be that would have been more helpful for you if you were in an environment as an independent artist where you are walking around and each booth is a is effectively a venue or an arts organization that you could approach? I mean, yeah, that would I think that would be fantastic for for one of the audiences, right? There's a there's a buy sell thing happening here, but I can I can totally see why the buyers here are not going to be interested in that. However, I, yeah. I don't know. There might be an appetite for some and. And one way if we apply like the creative process to this is, is there a way you can prototype that experience? So for example, maybe you have the option to do the reverse role thing, you know, in the next conference and there's one room that's set up backwards and it's whoever wants to go in and maybe you only do it if you get, you know, you got to have at least five or 10, you know, uh, people or I don't, I don't know how you, I don't know what the solution is, but you could think about prototyping it in a way before going all in and see if, see if there's a way to validate that that model helps get, helps solve the objectives. 
my, my, I, I guess as a designer, I would be thinking about how, how will this benefit the presenter who's going to this, this conference that it probably will raise some of the, the, the ones that have been in the business, they're probably, their red flags are probably going off like crazy. The agents would probably love it. So the, the, this gets back to like, well, what is the, what is WAS organizational objectives and does the tactic of role reversal, would that help achieve those objectives? And if WA doesn't think the volume of connections isn't a problem, for example, like the volume of how many did, did every presenter talk to a hundred different agents or artists? If that's like, for example, not an objective, then it won't matter, right? And they, they probably won't make it objective unless their presenter audience cares about that. And they mean, from what I understand, most of them are going to talk to the artists that have been on their radar and the agents that they already know. They're not shopping. They're not browse shopping like you do on vacation. It's, I think you even said it, it's like close to grocery store. I got my list. I know that you're selling crackers on aisle eight, but I'm going on the outside. I'm sticking to veggies, dairy, meat, and I'm out of there. And unless you're like, you know, I'm in Italy. So of course I'm just going to go to a grocery store and I'm going to walk every aisle. And it's a different mindset, right? One's discovery oriented. The other one is, is much more kind of task oriented. And it, it, I think it really depends on what the objectives are and, and what does everybody value, right? So for you and I, yeah, <laughs> I, I love the idea of, of trying out an experience like that. That would be fascinating. But I, I wonder if the, the, the buyers, the presenters would feel the same way. <clears throat> right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised that somebody made the suggestion to you that, well, you really got to give it four or five years. As frustrating as that is, because to some extent, that's also been my experience. I mean, it, 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 you already know this. At the end of the day, it's, it's totally a relationship-based business. So regardless of what the objectives of the conference are, as you said, the buyers are going in there with a preset of things they want with the maybe the occasional new meeting just for the you know just to meet somebody new mm -hmm. but it really is a lot of the same people meeting a lot of the same people yeah it's getting the band back together every year and there's nothing wrong yeah. with that necessarily but if you're not in the band it's it's a weird thing and again it depends on what the objectives of everybody are to know whether that's gonna you know work or not i guess oh one other thing i was right. going to say about you asked about my experience I don't know the old model of this. I just know my model. And for me, a default is email. And then later I, I moved more to phone and it's, and it's, it's hard to figure out which format uh, presenters like. I try, to, I try to store that in my CRM if they have a preference for phone or email. But when I went to the, the halls, I definitely felt like there was this camp of people who felt threatened by, there are people out there that are booking shows over email this is not going to work or like I couldn't even figure out what the problem was besides their fear that yes, it's possible to create a relationship with somebody online. Like, yes, it is. <laughs> but it was like this thing. There's them and there's us and they are, it's almost like it was a threat or something. Like it was this really weird. It was just a very strange thing for me. Cause I, maybe my age, I, I don't know, you know what it is, but like I have, hundreds of conversations. I'm sure you do too, every single year. And I like to put a name to a face. I love being able to get on the phone, but some of these I've never even met the present a couple presenters. I didn't meet, I think one or two, we never met in person. The whole thing happened. I mean, th I think I told you this story. We were looking for a, uh, we were trying to do a, uh, what is it? The uh, presenters consortium for jazz 
grant uh, this year. And we did do it. Uh, I had someone drop out. One of the presenters had to drop out. And I was at Arts, I was at, uh, was it Arts Midwest? Yeah, I think it was Arts Midwest. Uh, might have been PAE. And somehow I, t- I told Hank Nair, who I know a little bit, he said, um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw something up to Susan, who knows the, the North Carolina presenters. She sent a blast out to everyone saying, hey, this artist needs one more presenter to go in on it. And the presenter that came in on it, he said, I, we would love to do this. We've been trying to, we've been trying to get you guys in here. What's in, what's involved? What do you need? And I said, here's the list. We need this filled out, this filled out, this tax form. I need it all by this date. And if you can't do it, it's fine, but it's, it's gotta be a real commitment at this point. We're in the last hour. No problem. I can do it. I'm going to put you in touch with this other guy, blah, blah, blah. My point of this is he was at the conference and I never met him. He was walking around the conference. <laughs> I was at the conference as well. And we did the entire thing in 12 hours and he saved our grant. We didn't get granted, which is fine, but he saved our application and allowed me to go through with it. The whole thing happened online because we had, we had a relationship <laughs> that was formed over right. maybe a year or two on, on online. And I still don't know what the guy looks like. And I look forward to meeting him at some point. And I really appreciate it. But you can do this. You know, it's not, anyhow, it's, that's just like an anecdote where to me, that's just normal. But it seemed like this was completely weird to some, I, I forget where I heard that. It might be one of those morning like educational talks about booking or something like that. And I just, I didn't really understand that. But I can understand if you feel like this is, I paid my dues and I come to the conference. So I'm an allowed seller and those other people aren't. It's like, that's not what it's about. It's about bringing the right art to the right audiences at those venues and helping that presenter achieve their goals and the artist getting to put their their craft out there for the world. That's what it's about. However that happened, the rest of it's just logistics, right? I mean, it's, no audience cares about what the sales process look like. It's completely irrelevant. Like, <laughs> There's definitely a, uh, the, the sort of the old vanguard, the, the, you know, the Grizzly Adams at these conferences walking around. And my experience has been um, with, it's not surprising that if, if I'm working with a, a younger promoter that, or, or even younger than myself, that they generally actually prefer email. <laughs> right. Cause that's what they're used to. I know from personal experience, the best way to make develop a relationship is in person. And then if you can't do it in person, then let's do it on, you know, let's talk on the phone. Um, and then of course, email is great for getting details and writing, but that approach actually doesn't work as I'm finding with, with some of the younger presenters who, who are not, they're not, you know, for example, if you're, if you're in a position and you're like just out of college now and you're, trying to run a, a tiny arts organization. And I know some people like that very young. They don't have much experience. They're totally enthusiastic about it. Uh, their default is definitely email. Oh yeah. I think it's the Not surprising. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you gotta, you gotta prove your sincerity to me before I'm going to give you my time. I know, I know I'm, I'm up for b- being victimized as soon as I get on that phone call. And a lot of people are just with the digital it's like you got to make that good first impression before you get access to me on the phone or whatever. It's common. So to me, it's just figuring out what each person prefers as their communication method. And I think artists and we need to figure out how to adjust to them. You know, at least that's what I do. It's like if they want to do phone call, great. If they don't, then I need to try to develop that relationship, you know, via email, whatever works for them. I want to try to help with that. And, and yeah, <laughs> but I, I would agree. Yeah. With, yeah. Yeah. Well, this might be a good stopping point. 
I always like to ask the question to people I get to talk to, what are you listening to? What, like, are, are there any new artists that you're listening to that we should all check out? And of course you should mention your own ensembles first, <laughs> just to reiterate <laughs> to everybody listening, we'll check out your, the bands that you're in. But aside from that, always curious what people are listening to. Uh, what am I listening to right now? Um, I've been listening to some Uri Kane recently, uh, some Bill Frizzell. Um, I've been listening to, there's a Turkish uh, artist called, uh, named Erkan Oğur, with the last name is O-G-U-R. Um, some of this is just influenced by people that are like in my bands and, and some of the music that we listen to. And I, I sometimes, you know, cop ideas from what I'm hearing in those compositions. So those are a couple of the things just recently that have kind of been on my, my uh, landscape. Uh, and then my group uh, is Mr. Ho's Orchestratica. And again, there's, there's two ensembles there. The primary one is our quintet, and that's uh, orchestratica.com, which if you totally misspell it, the machine learning at Google will probably help you fix it. So it's just like <laughs> Orchestratica, but it, O-T-I-C-A at the end instead of an A at the end. Um, but it'll, it'll come up there. And, and yeah, that's, uh, that's us. <clears throat> that's awesome. Well, this, I think this has been great. We covered a lot more than I thought we would, which is a good thing. Lastly, where can people listening go to find out more about you? And you just mentioned the ensemble names. Um, sure. What, what's the main website where people could connect with you? Um, yeah. So if it's for the band, again, orchestratica.com. Uh, if you go to slash press kit, one word, if you're a presenter, that would be our, uh, we have a special website that's a little bit different. It has tech and bio and it's, it's kind of a one page, one sheet. Uh, for them. So um, the fan site, though, is just the orchestratica.com. Uh, crashandboom.com is my own personal site. Um, there, There's fan mailing lists on both of those. So if you're interested in just if you live in Boston and want to come see shows that I play or whatever, uh, that would be crashandboom.com. And then my uh, Twitter Twitter handle and uh, is orchestratica and Instagram is orchestratica as well. So I just use those for all of my music as well as the band. <clears throat> Awesome. Brian, yeah. thank you so much for your time today. This is really great. Yeah, it's been great to talk to you. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, you bet. Let's connect soon. Okay, cheers. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.